The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 28, and uh, this morning we are progressing towards the end of our study in the Gospel of Matthew. We are in the last chapter, and this is not really an end of the story. This is just a link in the continuing story of the living Christ who's no longer in the world, but of course he does live today in our hearts. And this last chapter is about the resurrection of Christ, which is hope for us. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, if there is no resurrection of the dead, if Christ did not arise from the dead, then there is no hope for us. Uh, There is no faith for us. Uh, We'll stay. If Christ didn't come out of the tomb, then we're going to stay in the tomb and we'll not be saved from our sins and we'll spend eternity in the fires of hell. But in this chapter, this last part of the chapter, we find one of the most convincing proofs that the resurrection is true. We're always confronted with people who don't believe in the resurrection of Christ and don't want to believe the stories in the Bible that they're true. But the Bible's never been proved to be untrue. And even when we look at something that was told as a lie, as we will in this scripture today, we see how that God superintends all events so that he gives, he gives testimony to his truth and to his power. And he was able to do that here uh, in, in, these, in, in the resurrection of Christ, as there was a lie that was told about his resurrection. And it becomes really one of the main proofs, or most, one of the most convincing proofs, that the resurrection is true. Now, if you look in your Bibles at Matthew 28 and verse number 11, I'll just re- let you remain seated as we read this passage. Verse number 11, Now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city... And showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. Now this is right immediately after Christ had risen from the dead and after he had appeared and and, and spoken to some of the folks there. Um, they went away. Jesus sent them away. Sent the women away to that had come to the tomb to go tell his disciples. And then the guards were there as well. And verse 11 says again, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city. That's the guards. And showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And you might want to contrast that to the commission that comes at the end of this chapter, how these men were taught by religious leaders to tell a lie. And how Jesus teaches his disciples to tell the truth of the gospel of Christ. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now before we actually get to these scriptures, I have to confess to you again the astounding ability that God has to prove that he is the almighty sovereign of the universe. Let me take just a few minutes to talk about that first. Number one in your outline today is the astounding sovereignty of God. God hits you with the truth of his might, of his power, every day when you open the door and you walk outside. When you sit on the patio at night and you look at the stars in heaven, the heavens declare 
the glory of God. And the creation is really just a stunning vista of revelation of who God is. And there's no way that you could possibly miss the, the majesty and the wisdom of God. But God's ways of showing his wisdom are not always as overpowering as you would see in the creation. Sometimes you have to be aware of just how cleverly that God uses subtle ways to bring out that same truth. If you're in tune with the scriptures and you study the Bible enough, you'll find out that these subtle ways that God shows his sovereignty is just sprinkled throughout the pages of the Holy Writ. And you have to be aware when God is telling you things like this, when he's just very, in, in very subtle ways, showing you that he does control all affairs. And that's especially true when you look at the life of Christ. And I think that we could expect that. We could expect to see it in his life, because his life was, no import, was more important than any other life. Now we see that point is made in Matthew chapter 9, when John the Baptist's disciples asked Jesus why his own disciples didn't fast. And there it says in that scripture, Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast off, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn, as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. That answer is equivalent to Jesus saying, While I am here... The most important thing that is to occupy your life is me. And he says here that fasting is mourning. And there's no reason to mourn when I am with you. When the day comes that I'm not with you, then you can mourn. But now while I'm in your presence, you concentrate on me. Well, the theme of Scripture is Christ. In modern theology, which is the equivalent of man's theology, the most important thing is not Christ. The more, most important thing is us. It's what we think about. What, what do, uh, who are we? That, that's really the most important thing to people today. And so today our theology is dominated by the teaching that God created the whole world for us. Most people teach that God needed somebody to love. And God was lonely. And God couldn't be happy unless he had us. And they teach you that the reason that you need to be saved and you need to obey God is because he is so upset that he has nightmares all the time about people that are bad, so bad that they won't return his love. Well, none of that's true. God did not create the world for us, and God was not unhappy. He wasn't bored. He was always happy in himself, and he doesn't need you to be happy for him to be happy. He doesn't need you to complete him. The world was created for his glory. He's the center of it. And as the word of God says, he does all things after the counsel of his own will. And so if there's any reason that you would trust him, if there's any reason that you would become a Christian, it's because God determined that. You never would have exalted God and spoken to him. You see, if God had wanted, he could have done this. He could have made a whole world full of Christians. And there wouldn't be anyone anywhere that ever rejected Christ. And people say, oh no, God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't do that because he wants us to have free will. and He wants us to have a choice. He, he wants us to love him because we want to love him, not because he forces us to. And of course, that conclusion is grounded in a totally false premise. And that is that people think that the world is about them and not about God. Now, in Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist called people to repentance, he knew what the Jews' objection would be. That they would 
they would say, well, we don't need to repent. We, we don't need to turn away from sins because we don't actually have any. We are the children of Abraham, so we're good to go. We don't need to worry about what you have to say. We have our position. And John already knew, John the Baptist knew, he was way ahead of that thinking, and so he told them what they were thinking. In Matthew 3, verse number 9, he says, And think not to say within yourselves. They had not expressed this out loud. He knew what they were thinking. And think not to say this within yourselves. We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So do you see that? If God had wanted all of them, he could have turned all of them into the children of God. And I don't know how to say this in any other way, but God must not have wanted all of them. I mean, he, he could have changed them all with just a snap of his fingers, just like that. And that's a truth that we have to live with, that God does according to his will. He controls everything and we control nothing. But why do I tell you these things? Because these verses that we've just read help drive that truth home. Everything that happens is because God has thought it through because God has planned it, and he's put everybody in their places to make it happen. And what he is able to do is to turn smart men into babbling fools. This text is really more profound than you ever thought. I know that you've read it many times. I, I, the soldiers here were told to tell a lie. And Christianity has been contending with that lie or variations of the lie for centuries. But has that harmed Christianity? Has Christianity failed because somebody told a lie? Does the cause of Christ suffer? Is it cast down or we cast down because of a lie? Is the resurrection proved false because somebody told a lie about it? No. Because here is a lie that was superintended by God. Now understand me very well. God does not cause people to lie. God doesn't tell lies. But he used a lie to give the resurrection the type of support that it could not get any other way by any conventional method. God used what men are. All men are liars. That's what the psalmist said. And God used what men are to prove what they desperately denied. So God superintended a lie and made it work for his glory. In Jeremiah chapter 9, it says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and know me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord." And so we've got to stop thinking that God does not control every event and the outcome of every event. God is the one who causes people to delight in him. Now I know that there are many people that hate that theology. You don't hear it taught very much today and people are dead set against it. But God has proved that to be true in so many ways. And he proves it right here in this scripture. As someone said to me uh, the other day, no matter what you think, no matter what your opinion are, is, you still have to deal with the Scriptures. What does the Bible have to say about it? Now, men that witnessed the greatest event in the history of the world, men who were confronted by angels at the resurrection of Christ, men who have felt earthquakes, would not tell the truth. And you say, why wouldn't they tell the truth after they'd seen all of that? Well, God didn't intend for them to tell the truth. He intended to use what men were. He intended to prove the resurrection by a bizarre lie. And we'll talk about that more in relation to the sovereignty of God. 
But now we have to go back to the end of chapter 27 because verses 62 through 66 are the setup for what happened in chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. God intended that the enemies of the resurrection would become the greatest proponents of it. And it started with these earlier verses. Now, you can look at those verses, and I'm not going to read all of them now. I just want to tell you that God put it into the hearts of these wicked chief priests to approach Pilate. He put it in their hearts to approach Pilate to post a guard at the tomb. You see, they remembered the claim that Jesus made. He said, on the third day, I'm going to arise from the grave. And so these chief priests wanted to have that tomb sealed. They wanted the Roman authority placed there. They wanted the power of Rome to be present there with a watch of soldiers. And they got that. Everything that they asked from Pilate, they got. And why did they get it? Because God was setting up his enemies to prove beyond doubt that a resurrection must have happened. Now, a very interesting thing here, or point, is that the chief priest knew more about the resurrection than the disciples. At the point that they went to Pilate, they had these resurrection claims in the forefront of their minds. And in their minds is this three days thing. Three days, three days. It's going to happen in three days. And they were very concerned, concerned rather, that they would guard that tomb and make it sure and seal it for three days, seal it up tightly for three days so that a resurrection can't happen or what they thought the disciples would come and steal the body. But the disciples never thought of that. They never expected that. They didn't think about the resurrection at all. Because you remember they despaired when Jesus died. They, they, were, they were sad when he died. They never thought about the resurrection. Their hopes were shattered when he died at the cross. We look at uh, John chapter 20. And the disciples came to the empty tomb and they were amazed to find out there is no body there. And this is why, in John 20, verse 9, For as yet they knew not the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Why didn't they know that? How many times had Jesus told them prior to his death that he was going to arise from the dead? Why didn't they know that? The chief priests knew it. They remembered this. They wanted the guard posted to keep the disciples away and so they couldn't steal the body. They didn't want to give feet to those claims. But they needn't worry about that because the disciples never would have stolen the body in order to, to, to fake a resurrection. They weren't thinking of resurrection. They completely missed it, even though Jesus kept talking about it. The whole time that he was teaching them, they were shooting spitwads at each other in class. They didn't pay any attention to what was going on. The only ones that actually paid attention to the resurrection was Jesus' enemies. And so you might think, well, why didn't God make sure that the disciples would know about the resurrection? Well, there's an easy answer. He didn't want them to interfere with the plan. He didn't want them over there milling around the tomb, waiting for Jesus to come out and just sitting there and watching the whole time, waiting for him to rise. They didn't want, he didn't want them scheming to put their two cents in, just like Peter did when he tried to stop the arrest of Jesus in the garden. Do you remember how... Peter pulled out his sword and took off there to try to defend Jesus. He did not want them interfering with his plan. So God controlled their minds too. He controlled the disciples' minds to keep them ignorant. And so his plan would play out perfectly as the chief priests were about to make total fools out of themselves. So he caused the chief priests to remember the claims. And the disciples didn't remember the claims until the perfect work of God at the tomb was complete. 
So God let the soldiers tell a lie. A lie that anyone with the brain of a peanut could have seen through. And it just happens that there are people whose brains have turned into peanut butter because they grasp this lie as the truth just as if George Washington told it. And so fuzzy-brained people, they go out at night and they go out of the doors of their homes and they look up in the sky and they say, Hey, Martha, a peanut exploded and here we are. So you see, the verses of 62 through 66 in chapter 27 are the basis for these verses in chapter 28. Back in 27 verse 64, they told Pilate, Command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, He has risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. And then in chapter 28 verse 13, here we see it playing out. Saying, they say to the soldiers, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And folks, let me tell you, that is God at work. Here is God setting up the enemies of Christ so that they will be as strong witnesses for the resurrection of Christ as the disciples later would be. You see, if someone came to the disciples after the resurrection and they said, what happened here? All the disciples would say, isn't it obvious? Jesus arose from the dead. And the questioner would say, Oh, well, we expect that you would say that. But what if they go to the chief priests and to the soldiers? And they say, what happened here? And they say, his disciples came and stole him away while we slept. And then they would say, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Next week, I'm going to show you the list of reasons why it was so dumb and why their lie proved beyond doubt that Jesus must have risen from the dead. So God shows his sovereignty and his wisdom and his control over all affairs, not just by hitting us on the head with the greatness of the creation, but he does it also in very strange, uncommon ways, in ways that you would never think of. Now before I go on, let, let's think back for just a minute to a couple things we discussed a few weeks ago. What about the soldiers skipping over Jesus and not breaking his legs at the cross? Well, that proved that God's in the details. What about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who were secret disciples of Jesus that were embedded in the Sanhedrin? Now in the early days of Christ's ministry, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were being prepared to awaken with courage at the exact moment that they needed, the exact moment that would destroy their prestige, that would destroy their power with the Jews. He was preparing them for that moment until they finally revealed their association with Jesus. And God had them there on the Sanhedrin because the disciples had no ability and no desire to claim the body of Jesus. And then, what about the burial with the rich that we read in that strange passage of Isaiah chapter 53? See if you can figure out what God was doing there. Have you ever looked at Isaiah chapter 53 and tried to put it in its full context? The full context of that is the millennial period. So Isaiah is prophesying something or about people that are thousands upon thousands of years in the future. It still hasn't even happened yet. And he's talking about these people in the future who are looking back to the death of Christ thousands of years before. And then Isaiah is writing about a prophecy that's going to happen 800 years from the time that he was. And you start trying to wrap your head all around that and you're going to find yourself in some very, very deep waters. God's controlling things, future, past, future, present, all of it's under the control of God. 
God is in the details. He shows it again and again by having guards at the tomb, by putting a seal on it to make sure that nothing short of an actual resurrection could have occurred. Now that's the lie. The truth is exalted by the lie because the truth is the only thing that could have happened. And the lie is so absurd that it sharply contrasts with the truth and accentuates the truth. You can't say it didn't happen without exalting your stupidity. And that's how God works in uncommon ways. Now that's the next thing I want to talk to you about. First is the astounding sovereignty of God, and the next is the amazing stupidity of man. People are really good at showing their stupidity. I, I know that sounds offensive. I guess it is, isn't it? You, you would rather say, or rather that I would say ignorance, because if you don't know something, um, it doesn't mean that you're stupid. Here, we're talking about definite stupidity. These are people that know facts. These are people that reject the resurrection and made up a stupid lie to cover it up. And when a person goes out of his door at night and he looks up and he says, oh, it's the Big Bang, all right. Well, I'm sorry, that's just plain stupid. They, they invent a stupid lie and they say that highly measured chaos turned into highly structured order. You've just moved from ignorance to pure stupidity when you say that. They didn't have to learn thermodynamics to understand why that can't be true. You just need a few grandkids. What you'll find out is uh, you leave them alone in the house for about 15 minutes and you'll find that order does not come out of chaos. Now, you might be ignorant of something. You, you can be ignorant of something. Um, you, you may not understand about the sovereignty of God because you haven't been taught that. You could be ignorant of it. But what about people that have seen the scriptures? What about people that have the proof of God's sovereignty? When the Bible says that God elected and God predestines and God regenerates and God effectually calls, why are there still some saying, somebody stole the body? Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand that metaphor I'm using? I, I, think, I think about why I'm standing here. There's no way that I could do this. When I was in school... I, I was the kid that was petrified to stand in front of people. I strictly avoided all speech classes like that was the place of lethal injection. So I wouldn't get in front of people to give a speech or anything like that. I didn't want the classes. And still even now, if I'm not preaching, I'm, I'm going to be the person in a room full of people that I don't know and I'll be the wallflower there. I couldn't do this. It's only by the grace of God that I can do this, and by the grace of God that I could do anything. I mean, if someone by some wild off chance should come to me after the service and say, you know, Pastor, that was a pretty good sermon, I haven't got anything to say, but praise God. He's the one that does these things. I, I don't have the power and the ability to do this. It's not about me. It's all about Him. It's by the grace of God that I do anything. But anyway, these, these guys were smart, but smart people can do stupid things too. They were educated, but they were stupid. They were doctors of the law, but they were stupid. They studied the scriptures as a full-time occupation. They should have known the scriptures. None of us know the scriptures like they knew them. Now imagine this. Imagine you live back in their time, and the scriptures were written on scrolls. They were these, they were these long scrolls that had to be rolled out 
in order to be read. Can you show us that picture there, um, Samuel? Long scrolls that had to be rolled out. This is, a, this is a scroll that's in the shrine of the book in Jerusalem. And uh, this scroll was found near the Dead Sea. And the scroll is of Isaiah. It's 24 feet long. These scrolls had to be rolled out in order to be read. Now the next picture I have is a guy trying to read that scroll. And I don't know who he is, but I'm sure that he has no clue about what that scroll says. There aren't any chapters and verses on those scrolls. And when a person rolled out the scroll, they had to know exactly where they wanted to read what they wanted to find. They had to know exactly where it was. When Jesus was in the synagogue at Nazareth, they handed him a scroll of Isaiah, and, and Jesus unrolled it and opened it up to the exact place that he wanted, and there he read a prophecy about himself. And why did he read that prophecy? Because those men that he was reading to in the synagogue knew the scriptures, but they didn't know that the scriptures were about him. But you know, there was none of them that said, this is really a miracle. This is a miracle that he can unroll the scroll to find the exact place that he wanted. No, that wasn't a miracle because every one of them there could have done that. They knew how to do the exact same thing. They knew how to find what they wanted to find. The miracle was what happened when Jesus read the scriptures and who he was that read the scriptures. This is what happened at the temple, John 7, 15. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, never having learned, or having never learned? Now the point is, the point is that none of us could do what those scribes and Pharisees could do. We have a Bible that has chapters and verses, and most of us can't find what we want to find in the Bible. Well, why is that true? Well, I think part of it's true because when I tell you that I've got a plan that you can read through the Bible in a year, and I tell you that plan includes 10 chapters a day, and you say, 10 chapters? What do you expect from us? 10 chapters a day? Who do you think we are? And that's why we don't know the Bible. We don't have any time to devote it to it. These people had time to devote. This is their occupation. This is their life, knowing the Scriptures. Now, I, I even have trouble finding things in the Bible today. You know why? Because a long time ago, I started relying on a computer. I can just type in the reference, and I can find it, or I can use my, my phone, tele, my, my uh, uh, iPhone, and it's smarter than any Pharisee about knowing the Scriptures. I Many it can find everything, anything that I want. And so, we have all these aids and stuff, and we just really can't even use the Bible to find anything in it. But what I do, do I, when I'm studying the Bible, I read, I highlight it. But if you were to hand me an English Bible that had no chapters and verses in it, these sermons would be a lot longer than they are now. So these men didn't have that problem, knew the Bible very well, and yet their understanding of Scripture was pitiful. And it shows the incapability of understanding what you read without Holy Spirit guidance. So Jesus told them, you are ignorant of the Scriptures. You do not know the Scriptures. And that was very offensive to them. Yes, they did know the Scriptures. Their, as I said, their occupation was the Scriptures. But what he meant was, you have no idea of the meaning of those Scriptures. So these are smart guys. They thought that they had outwitted Jesus. They thought that they were on top because they were able to get him crucified. And now they're going to make sure that everything that he taught stayed dead and buried in the tomb with him. 
So they're not going to take a chance of a stolen body and a fake resurrection. And so with all urgency and with all diligence, they tried to outsmart God. And they posted a watch there with a governmental seal on the tomb. And did you know this? That was God pushing them to do it all the time. It was God that was saying to them, go get Pilate. Go hurry and get over there to Pilate. Get there as fast as you can. Get some guards. Make sure you go to the tomb. Make sure you seal it. Make sure they stay there at least three days. God put them up to it. Make sure you go seal the tomb. So God set them up to show how stupid they were. And then in the end, they wouldn't be able to say with a straight face, somebody stole the body. So here we are at verse number 11. The resurrection occurred at the beginning of verse 11. The women who came to the tomb had found it empty. An angel was there and told them to go quickly and tell the disciples. And as they hurried off, so did some of the soldiers that were on the watch. They headed straight to the chief priest to tell them what had happened. Verse 11, now when they were going, behold, some of the watch, that's the guards at the tomb, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all the things that were done. Some of the watch went. Not all of them went. Now remember, this is not one or two soldiers on watch. You've seen the pictures like we talked last time. You've seen the pictures of a couple soldiers standing on either side of the tomb. No, this would be at least 12 men to carry a watch around the clock. And it could be up to 60 men. Now, Pilate said to the chief priests, the elders, the leaders, he says, you go make that tomb as sure as you can. So the priests went over to the fortress of Antonia and they, and they took Pilate's authorization there and they went to get the soldiers and they all marched over there to set up camp at the tomb. Now let me show you for just a minute how the Roman government would often do, overdo their response with a show of strength. If you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 23 for just a moment. This is when Paul was at the temple and he preached and the Jews were so mad that they tried to kill him. Now the Roman soldiers were over there nearby at the fortress of Antonia and they heard the commotion that was right next to the temple where they were. So they heard the commotion, they went over and stopped it and they took Paul into custody. And uh, when they held him there, the Jews were determined that they were going to get at him and kill him. Now look at verse number 12 in Acts 23. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40. There were more than 40 which made this conspiracy. Look at that. There were more than 40 men. They conspired. That's less than 50, or else we would find 50 in the text. So more than 40, but less than 50. And look at the Roman response when, when, when they found out about this. Paul the prisoner belonged to them. Nobody's going to get at Paul. That's a Roman prisoner. So the chief captain says, we're going to take him to Caesarea for safety. That's about 60 miles away. Then in verse 23 of Acts 23, And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen 200 at the third hour of the night, and provide them beasts that they may set Paul on, and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. Now do you see the response? There's less than 50 men that are the problem. And Rome's response is to send 460 men to guard Paul. 60 of them are on horses. 200 of them are expert spearmen. And these 460 are against less than 50 hotheads that are good with swords as Peter was. I think it's kind of like the response that was at the tomb. A watch could be as few as 12 
but as many as 60 men. And so I think that when the, when the Pharisees or the, the leaders and so forth, and when they went over there to the fortress to get the, with the letter from Pilate or the charge from Pilate to get soldiers, I think they went over there and got all they could get. And so they went over there and they got 60 of them. The entire watch, entire watch of 60 men to come and guard that tomb so there was no way that anybody was going to steal the body. Well, should we ask then why the watch in verse 11 left? Why did they head into the city? Because they were there to guard a body and there was no body. So it's stupid for them to stand there menacingly with their swords ready to stab someone who's going to steal a body if there is no body. Doesn't that tell you Jesus arose? So they took off to the chief priest to tell them what happened. And I can tell you for sure they didn't say to them, we don't have any idea what happened. We don't know what happened. And herein lies the great problem for the priest. Here's their great problem. Think a minute, who are they? Among them were the chief of all, that would be the high priest and the former high priest. And do you think that God doesn't know how to bide his time until he can plunge the dagger all the way to the hilt? Who were those men? Ananias. Ananias, who was the former high priest, he tried Jesus first. He failed to secure a verdict against him, and he was angry about that. He was upset. He blew a fuse. And he sent him over to Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time. And Caiaphas declared him guilty of blasphemy. And so they spit on Jesus. They beat him. They, they just beat him up with their fist. And the next morning, the whole Jewish council took them to Pilate to get him crucified. And there was God the Father who sat through all of that. God watched all of that being done. Jesus endured it. And all that Jesus had to do was just... Just a spoken command. He could have flushed them all down the toilet into the sewer where they deserved to be. Jesus could have done it. But he didn't. He sat there through it. And God will not be rushed in his plan. God acts. God does not react. He never waits to see what you're going to do to see what he's going to do. He already knows every step. And that's because he ordains everything that comes to pass. What God did was to use the chief priest as a part of his plan to set up positive proof that there was a resurrection. Now, if you look at this, the guards have absolutely no motivation to tell a lie until... And then they receive some motivation. I'm going to talk about that next week. They have no motivation at all to tell a lie. They came to their report, and they were eyewitnesses of strange supernatural events. But what did they say? What would they have said to the chief priest? Well, it's an incredible story, to be sure, a very strange story. But the high priest never said, are you guys high or something? Have you been drinking? No, no, these guys left the tomb unguarded because the body was gone, and they said never a word about it being stolen. The lie that it was stolen was fabricated. That's set up back in 2764. So what did the guards tell them? Well, it says all things that were done. They didn't say that Jesus, Jesus, they saw Jesus arise because they didn't. They didn't say, well, he vaporized and he went through the stone. They didn't see any of that. Nobody saw the actual resurrection. So what would they have said? Well, they would have told the story that, well, it's very early in the morning. They're there on Sunday. It's very early in the morning. The watch was around the tomb. Each of us were taking our turns and we were doing our job. We were very vigilant to do what we were trained to do. We can't be held responsible for this. It's not our fault. We couldn't have stopped it. 
Things took place that were far above our grade, uh, pay grade. It was supernatural. And they said there was an earthquake. And I'm sure the chief priests nodded at each other. And they said, oh, well, we felt an earthquake. And they said, but you don't understand why there was an earthquake. He said, there, there was this brilliant flash of light, like lightning. And there was this angel that came descending from the sky. And as soon as he touched down on the ground, a great earthquake occurred. And at that point, we were so scared. Our knees were knocking together hard. We were shaking all over. And then all of us went out cold. All of us went out cold. We were unconscious. You can't blame us. There was nothing that we could do about it. We couldn't stop it. And we sure weren't going to try. It was a God thing, you know. And then they said, we woke up from our fear. And the stone was rolled away. And, and it was lying there flat. And the door of the tomb was open and there were some women in there who said that he had risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. The body is gone. And so there's no body to guard. And so our job's done. Well, the chief priest never said, well, that's crazy. That couldn't happen. Try again, bozos. We're not buying that story. No, I think the chief priest could see they were actually shaken. They were still scared by what they'd seen. They were scared when they told the story. Nobody else, nobody else could make them act this way unless it was just as they said. Here we have brave, hardened soldiers, and they're not going to act like frightened children unless it was just as they told it. And the chief priests never disputed their story. They were silent while they were telling it. And all the time that they, these soldiers were telling it, the wheels were turning in their minds. We've got to do something about this. We, we have got to contain this story before it gets out. We can't let anybody believe there was a resurrection. So they called all the leaders together, the Sanhedrin that met clandestinely at night just a few days before to condemn Jesus. Now they're called out in the daylight of Sunday, and they go to see, and they get the leaders together, and they start working on this lie to counteract the resurrection. They knew it. The worst thing that they feared had happened. I'm going to stop with that. I've laid the groundwork today to get to that lie that was told. I want to show you next time how incredible that it was. It is so contrary to reason that it did nothing but strongly attest to the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. So what do you need to take away from what you've heard today? Well, think mostly about God's sovereign plan. That God's never dependent on you. God never waits to see what you're going to do before he decides what he will do. Your life is in God's sovereign hand. So he's not worried if you don't believe him. That doesn't change him. God doesn't shed tears because things are not going the way that he thought that they might go. He's not rattled because there are too many people that don't believe in him. And so he's there in heaven, he's wringing his hands and wondering, what can I possibly do to convince people that I want to take them to heaven where they can be happy? Throw away that thought. The Bible doesn't support it. I think we could call it Big Bang Theology. It's far away from the Scripture as evolution is from creation. Nothing you do is going to change God. But I can tell you this, if you believe Him, it will certainly change you. Must you come to Christ to be saved? Am I trying to teach you today that nobody makes a decision to come to Christ, that God's just, just done this and... There's nothing for you to do here. Is that what I'm trying to tell you? Does God force you? Do you come to Christ because you've been forced to love God? No, you love God only when God reveals himself to you. 
In John 6, and 45, Jesus said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that have heard and have learned of the Father cometh unto me. So who comes? Those who have been taught by God. And they're drawn to the Father. So I can tell you that if you have any feeling at all that you want to be saved, it's because God is already working in you. When you decide for Him, it's because He first decided for you. God can raise up stones to make all the children that He wants. And so when you come to Jesus in salvation, you can never say, well, I did it because I'm smart. I did it because I make choices that are better than other people. No, the only reason that you come to Him is not because you're smarter, it's because God has revealed Himself to you. So when you want to come to Christ, you do it willingly. You want to come because God has revealed Himself to you. So when you come, the ultimate result is that you give Him the glory. But you never talk about what you did. You never talk about how smart you are, how good you were, how you were anything at all. God deserves all the glory for our salvation. Folks, the glory of God is shattered out by the heavens. It's shattered out by the creation. But it's also whispered in very subtle ways throughout the scriptures. Is God concerned about this lie? Hardly. Hardly. He is, after all, the sovereign God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we acknowledge your power and your glory. Lord, that nothing in this world is about us. That every person that you save is for your glory. To acknowledge who you are. To become worshipers of you because you deserve all the glory. We thank you, Lord, that you bring us to salvation and that it's dependent on you because if it was ever dependent on us, we would never come. We would never believe the first thing about you unless you revealed yourself to us. We thank you, Lord, for that. We ask that you would speak to hearts today and someone who hasn't seen the truth of the glory of Jesus Christ, the saving power of Jesus Christ, that you would open up yourself to them today and they would see that and they would willingly and gladly come to receive you as Savior. Speak to our hearts, Lord, and help us that are saved to every day acknowledge your sovereign power over our lives and yield ourselves to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.